and welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new, we're glad that you're here and we pray that you'll connect with what God is doing here in our midst. And we're in a short series right now called Hard Questions for the Christian Faith. And today we're considering the question, how can a good God send people to hell? When it comes to hell, I think the objections come from two different perspectives. Either hell is seen to be a ridiculous and primitive idea that rational people couldn't possibly believe, or else if it is taken seriously, it's considered far too barbaric to reconcile with the idea of a good and loving God. Now, when my kids were in elementary school, there was an app that gained some attention among parents. It was called Phone Call from the Devil. <laughs> The idea was that if your child was acting up and you weren't able to get them to behave or listen to you, you would press the ring button on the phone call from the devil app. As you did, your cell phone would ring. And as you answered it, there was this hideous growling voice that would sound on the other end. The caller would introduce himself as Satan and ask to speak to the child. And as you hand the phone over, he gives the most terrifying pre-recorded message threatening to visit the child with demons if obedience isn't immediate. Now, this is a terrible idea for an app, and our children were very grateful that we never resorted to it. But I think that some people view hell a little bit like that app. They see it as a control tactic made to scare people into obedience. Is that what's going on with the Bible's teachings on hell? If they are willing to consider that hell might be real, some people say things like, surely you don't believe that the descriptions of hell are literal. Interestingly, people will say that even if they haven't actually read any of the Bible's descriptions of hell. Our culture's depictions of hell are enough to convince people the entire concept seems crazy. And if those depictions are anywhere near true, how could a God of love allow something like that? The thought that a good God could torment anyone just sounds grotesque. But if that torment goes on for eternity, how do we make sense of that? Have you thought about any of these questions? Because I think that they're important to ask. And in our time today, we'll try to answer them. To do that, I'd like to look together with you at the words of Jesus in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 42 to 48. If you don't have a Bible handy, pause the video and grab one so you can follow along. I'll start reading at Mark 9, uh, starting in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is the word of God. Now, the first thing I think we need to do is clarify what we're talking about when we use the word hell. This passage shows us that. Hell isn't what you think. It's actually worse. 
Hell isn't a big party that Satan throws for people who like to bend the rules. It's more awful than the bad place. Hell isn't what you think, it's worse. Now let me explain why I say that. In this passage, D Jesus describes four terrible circumstances that might happen to someone. And each time he says, it would be better to experience that than to go to hell. If you have to come up with four comparisons, it's because you fear that people either won't believe or won't understand if you just give one. It feels like he's describing something so terrible that it can't be described. Look at verse 42, for instance. There he says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, the great millstone literally says here, the millstone of a donkey. It was this massive stone with a hole in the middle for a beam that was turned around by a donkey on a harness. You would struggle to even lift a millstone like that. But if it was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, you would drop to the bottom without any hope of escape. It's a terrifying picture. Jesus says, that's way better than hell. Or in verse 43, he describes someone whose hand is cut off. In verse 45, he pictures a person whose foot has been cut off. And in verse 47, there's a person whose eye has been gouged out. And each time Jesus says, it is better, it is better, it is better than being thrown into hell. And remember, he's talking in a period where there wasn't universal health care, prosthetic limbs, or even wheelchairs. Even still, that's way better than hell. Now, add to that the fact that the word hell itself is actually a word picture. It comes from the Greek word Gehenna, which was derived from the name of a notorious garbage dump outside of Jerusalem in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. It was a filthy place that was constantly burning. Simmering smoke could uh, always be seen, and it became the symbol of the judgment to come. In verse 43, Jesus, in fact, calls hell the unquenchable fire. But there are other descriptions that are used as well. In Matthew 25, 25, 30, Jesus calls it outer darkness and the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when people ask me whether I think these descriptions are little, literal, my answer is no, they probably aren't. Because I think they're trying to de describe something that's far worse. They're trying to describe something that thankfully we haven't yet experienced here on this earth. Now, when people don't reject the idea of hell altogether, they sometimes suggest that it's just a description of severe capital punishment. We're punished and then we die. And that sounds a lot easier to take. But it's hard to reconcile with Jesus's it is better statements. It's also hard to reconcile with the other descriptions of final judgment. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 1 uh, ver verse 9, it says this, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, if the punishment was just death or destruction, it's hard to understand what the word eternal might add to that statement then. It seems instead that it's describing destruction that lasts for eternity. And that seems to line up with what we see in Revelation 20, verse 10. 
that's where it says, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Similarly, Matthew 25, 46 says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. To use that phrase, eternal punishment, and to suggest that it means something less than forever, then we'd have to say the same thing about eternal life. You can't have one without the other. Both are described as lasting for all eternity. And so the clear picture that emerges is that hell is a place of unending torment. And I think that we would all admit that something this terrible troubles us. It troubles me. But maybe you'd go farther than that. Maybe you'd say, this offends me. And maybe you're ready to walk out on this just right here. But before you dismiss it, I think you need to ask yourself why. Because there are people all over the world and all throughout history from different cultures and religions who have believed in the idea of hell and final judgment. To dismiss it outright? That just sounds like cultural bias. Have you considered the, the fact that you might be the one who's wrong? If you're going to disagree with Jesus on something this important, it would seem important to at least listen to the justification that he gives. So let's turn there now. We've said that hell isn't what you think, it's worse. But how could a good God send people there? The first reason that the Bible gives is it, the cries for justice. Unless we're going to ignore the pain that's been inflicted through sin, it requires a response. God sends people to hell because of the cries for justice. Now, when I first read the passage for you today, I didn't mention what was going on when Jesus spoke. If you look back to verse 36, you'll see that Jesus had just taken a, a child in his arms to express something about faith. Most pictures of this scene show a young child sitting on Jesus' knee as he speaks to a group of his followers. Then, just before he goes into those descriptions of hell, he says in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. The point is that a young child and the potential for their harm is a starting point for his discussion of God's justice and final judgment. It made me think of the trial of Larry Nasser, the USA gymnastics team doctor who was convicted of hundreds of terrible sexual assaults lasting over almost three decades. This week I read the last one of over 150 victim statements that were read at his trial. This one was by a woman named Rachel Den Hollander. She said this, I realize you have many factors to consider when you fashion your sentence, but I submit to you that the preeminent question in this case is you reach a decision about how best to satisfy the dual aims of this court is the same question that I asked Judge Neff to consider. How much is a little girl worth? How much is a young woman worth? I ask that you hand down a sentence that tells us that what was done to us matters, that we are known, we are worth everything, worth the greatest protection the law can offer, the greatest measure of justice available. I don't think that there's anyone who would call Rachel Den Hollander cruel or barbaric in making that request. 
She knows the damage that's been inflicted by Nasser's sins. And she knows how long that damage will be felt by his victims. He was initially sentenced to 60 years in federal prison, then 175 years in state prison, and then at another conviction, he had another 40 years added after that. That impossible length of the sentences seems to be a way of expressing the reality our justice system can't adequately punish people like Larry Nasser. There's a need for greater justice in what can be expressed in this world. In, in Genesis 4.10, after Cain killed Abel and committed the first murder, God confronts him with these words. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The sin of this world demands God's justice. People like Rachel Den Hollander cry out for justice. And when the victims are silenced, even their blood cries out to God for justice. Would it really be more loving for God to ignore those cries? Wouldn't we call that indifference? Wouldn't we consider that unloving? Wouldn't we cr criticize that? as injustice. Many people will allow for the idea of final judgment for people like Larry Nasser. But when they do, they assume that hell is just for other people. But look at the way that Jesus speaks of, uh, of, of the sins that lead to hell in this passage. In verse 43, for instance, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, presumably most murder and abuse comes from the hand but so do the spiteful and hurtful things that we've written and the ways that we've cheated on forms and lied in applications. In verse 45, Jesus says, if your foot causes you to sin, that would include all of the sinful places we've been and the ways that we've followed people into sin. Then in verse 47, Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin. And at this point, you might be ready to object. Jesus' view of sin just seems too broad. But tell that to the person whose life has been devastated by pornography, or the person whose intimate moments have been shared online. Our eyes lead us into sin every time we lust after that which we can't have. But Jesus isn't trying to give us a list of possible sins. He's trying to help us to see how expansive sin is. He's trying to warn us that God's judgment isn't just reserved for the Larry Nassers of the world. It's not just for other people. As it says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reality is, the warning of hell is for all of us. And that's what makes the final point of this message so urgent. God sends people to hell because they reject him. The message of the Bible is not of an uncaring God that delivers justice the way an Uber Eats driver delivers dinner. God warns and he pleads. He does everything that an all-powerful God could do to provide a way out for us. But ultimately, God sends people to hell because they reject him. They refuse the help that he offers. Let's take one last look at Jesus' words. Notice how Jesus speaks about our sin. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Notice each time he says, if. 
But who's, who's he kidding? Whose hand or foot or eye hasn't caused them to sin? And if we're going to start cutting off limbs each time we end up in sin, we're going to need to call an ambulance and maybe we should go straight to the morgue. It's at this point that people again ask, you don't take this literally, do you? <laughs> Obviously, Jesus isn't suggesting that we self-mutilate ourselves to purity. But just because he's not being literal, it doesn't mean that he's not saying something extremely urgent and perfectly clear. With the reality of hell more terrible than anything we could imagine in this life, he's urging us, pleading with us to deal with it as decisively and with as much determination as anything we could give ourselves to. But Jesus didn't just warn us of judgment. He actually took that judgment on himself. On that final night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed earnestly. And Luke twenty-two forty-two records his prayer. It says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The cup was a common symbol of God's wrath. It was an image often used in the Old Testament to describe people being made to drink God's judgment. And so here Jesus is saying to the Father, if there's no other way to provide a pardon for people than me drinking the full torment of hell in their place on the cross, then I'm willing to do that. But if we understand Jesus' death for us on the cross as essentially bearing the fury of hell in our place, then surely it has to change how we view hell. If Jesus' death on our behalf makes a pardon from hell available as a free gift to all who trust him, and surely the ball's in our court. Surely there can't be any more claims of uncaring cruelty. As C.S. Lewis said, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he's done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. God has answered the cries for justice with eternal judgment. But then he himself has borne that judgment in our place that we might receive a pardon from it. He's done everything to provide a way for sinners to spend eternity with him. The question of, how can a good God send people to hell? Surely becomes, what more could a good God do to keep us from hell? And the incredible thing is that this incredible fusion of justice and mercy is even available to people like Larry Nasser. I mentioned that the last victim to speak at his trial was Rachel Den Hollander. Hear the words with which she appealed to her abuser. She said this, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness 
from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. If anyone thinks that hell is an ugly doctrine, you need to listen to Rachel Den Hollander again. God's judgment declares that the cries of the victims have been heard. It demonstrates that sin will be punished, but because God will bring judgment, we don't have to. God's judgment can even free us to forgive those who wrong us. Once you've seen how God forgives you, it gives you the strength to forgive others. Tell me that anything even close to that balance of justice and mercy happens in our modern ways of dealing with wrong. It doesn't. So as we close, let's try and just put aside the abstract thoughts about God. Let's stop questioning whether he's right to run the universe the way he does or whether we could do a better job of it. And let me ask you whether you are absolutely sure that you have turned to Jesus for the pardon that he offers. I'm genuinely troubled as I reflect on the terrible images of judgment that Jesus gives us. I'm troubled because I don't want you to face unquenchable fire, utter darkness, eternal punishment, or an eternity that's worse than having a millstone tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for anyone I love. And Jesus doesn't want that for you either. He drank that cup for, that you and I deserve to swallow. But if we ref refuse him, there is no other hope for forgiveness. If you want the pardon from the judgment that Jesus died to provide for you, I want to give you an opportunity to receive that right now. And Rachel Den Hollander had it right. It starts by admitting your sin. Think about the ways that you've sinned with your hands and your feet and your eyes. But most of all, admit the sin of not giving God the place in your life that he deserves. Then recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He drank the cup of God's wrath that we should have drunk. Thank him for that. And then put your full trust in Christ alone to save you and to be your God. This isn't a transaction, it's the beginning of a relationship where he leads and you follow as his child. If that expresses your heart this morning, then join me in prayer. Let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, as we consider the reality of hell, we've also been moved by the reality of your love. We confess our sins before you now. We believe that hell is not just a place for Larry Nasser. It's my sin. It's all of our sins. Father, we confess those before you now. And we look to Jesus Christ. He is the one who bore our punishment, took that in our place on the cross, that we might be set free. And by faith, we receive that pardon that he provided. 
By faith, we trust in him as our savior. We receive that gift of eternal life and we say thank you for it. But at the same time, we confess Jesus as our God. He's our Lord. He is a shepherd and we are his sheep. And we say to you now, we'll follow. Lead us into this relationship with Jesus Christ. Lead us to experience the fullness of that. And help us to share this message of, yes, great justice, but great, great love. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you understand how a good God could send people to hell. More than that, I hope it's helped you to see the perfect justice and mercy of God who calls you to himself. If you've taken that first step to a relationship with God this morning, or if you want to, then send me an email or just write first step in the comments below. I'd be happy to send you something to help you get started on the right footing in your walk with Jesus. And if you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.